0: Welcome back to the program. To paraphrase Shakespeare, the fault is not in our food, but in the choices we make. Specifically about what we eat, where it comes from, and the public policy choices that surround it. There is no question that we've evolved as meat eaters. But given the forces of big agriculture and the fast food industry, we have to reassess not just the practice of eating meat, but the kinds of meat we choose. Things like factory farming, antibiotics, and many of the practices of the food industry Seek to undermine those choices. My guest, Patrick Martins, is one of the leaders of the sustainable food and slow food movement. And in his new book, The Carnivore's Manifesto, he sounds a clarion call to all of these issues. Patrick Martins is a distributor of heritage and rare breed meats through his company, Heritage Foods. He's also a founder of Slow Food USA and a founder of the Heritage Radio Network. It is my pleasure to welcome Patrick Martins to the program to talk about the Carnivores' Manifesto, Eating Well, Eating Responsibly, and Eating Meat. Patrick Martins, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Jeff, for having me.
0: Great to have you here. I want to talk first about this reality that that we are carnivores at heart, that we are going to eat meat, and, and we sort of need to move beyond that debate to a certain extent.
1: Well, I mean you uh, people can make their personal decisions as they wish, but as a meat distributor who realizes that they i think as Americans, we consumed eleven billion livestock last, last year alone. Uh, Eating meat is a reality. So while I leave it to the academics to discuss whether or not we should eat meat, I'm trying to create a little bit of a roadmap uh, for how to eat better meat and create a better supply um, through my book. And through my business, I try to make a small little splash on behalf of some heritage breed farmers that raise their animals the right way.
0: And overall, what is the current state of the meat industry today?
1: Well, uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's a safe food supply on many levels. I mean, uh, you know, I think they do certain things well. Uh, Yeah, certain things they've got very good at. But when it comes to meat, I think essentially, especially when it comes to the smaller livestock like chickens pigs, turkeys. I think those animals end up suffering. And we know some of the stories, you know, they're confined. Uh, They never see the light of day. Uh, They leave the lights on all day, uh, you know, day and night so that they're continually up and eating. Uh, Those things, you know, strike me as somewhat unfair. Uh, I'm a little concerned with these gag laws, you know, all these people lobbying against cameras, uh, in places where we, you know, have processed so much of our food. But uh, one of the things that really concerns me, like I say, especially with poultry, is how they've kind of been overbred to grow fast. That's great for the bottom line of the company um, and for shareholder returns at the end of the year, but it's not really the formula for raising a healthy and happy animal. And I'm of the opinion that if we're going to ask these animals to die for us, we should treat them fairly and humanely while they're alive.
0: I want to talk about these gag laws because they're part of the, the larger issue of what we really know about what's going on in the places that meat is being raised and and so much misinformation is out there and the way language and marketing is used sometimes to lead us down a pretty dangerous path
1: for sure for sure i mean you know for instance uh... you know purdue and companies like that they're very proud to write con- or you know advertise constantly that they have no hormones no hormones we hear that all the time but then we ask why antibiotics? they basically give subtherapeutic antibiotics means low doses of antibiotics in the food from when the animal is born to when they die. why Why do animals need medicine? I mean we can 't imagine doing that to our children, so why would we do it to the pig that makes our bacon? Um, you know on some level, I believe that these industrial farms have to become better farmers. If their animals need preventive medicine, something is wrong. And I think, uh, you know, we live in a society, uh, our meat world, it's a very, very controlled world, and people put a lot of effort into making sure that no one is really getting answers to important questions. And by the way, when I say cameras should be in slaughterhouses, I don't mean it should be on the World Wide Web. Um, You know, Temple Grandin, the great Temple Grandin, uh, animal rights activist, has been arguing for a third-party arbiter to see these cameras, but that having the cameras on, even if no one sees the results, it just gets people to perform better in the uh, factories, and I think, you know, the animals deserve it. Someone should be watching, because we put this in our
0: mouth. The amount of meat that is produced in these places that really care about the ethical treatment of animals Is that a relatively small number compared to to the vast amount of meat that's produced in this country right now?
1: Yes, it's uh, next to nothing, really, the people that do it the right way, Um, I think. It's a very, very, very small, but it has always been a vibrant community, and it does have the potential to grow. Uh, One of the things I say in my book, The Carnivore's Manifesto, which is 50 short essays... Um, is all you need is a three-by-three-foot grill in a busy neighborhood anywhere in the country, and you could be going through 300, 100% pasture-raised, grass-fed cows a year for one little burger joint. One cow makes about 500 hamburgers. So if you think about that, it's really not that hard to conceive of little mom-and-pop businesses or food trucks opening up and helping farms grow. And one of the goals of the book is to have more farms producing more of the food that Americans eat. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the green markets and farmers markets around the country have shown that there is potential there, but now we need to get into the action of starting the solution and not just talking about it.
0: What impact does this have on the cost of meat?
1: Well, um, basically, and this was one of the things uh, my co-writer, Mike Edison, he was like, I cannot be affiliated with the book that would say this. But uh, one of the conclusions that the book drew, and I think it's a conclusion that everybody knows at heart, is that, uh, you know, Americans should be eating less meat. And, uh, you know, now whereas food always needs to be available, when you're talking about pork chops and hamburgers and 16-ounce ribeye steaks, it is true that it should cost more and people should eat less. But, uh, you know, when you really look at your recipe books, you'll probably notice, you know, a number of Italian recipe books and, uh, pastas doesn't call for much more than two to three ounces of a pork or a beef for a portion. That ends up coming to two or three dollars, you know, per person at dinner. So, you know, there are ways to get around the price issue with recipes, but in essence, people should be eating less meat and, uh, and paying a little bit more for it. It would assure them a healthier product and probably save them healthcare costs down the line anyway.
0: It also relates to the larger issue that you spend time talking about of sustainability and all of this. Talk a little about that, Patrick.
1: Well, you know, McDonald's, uh, you know, uh, is, I think, a very, very, very large buyer of corn to feed their cows. Uh, This is just an example of the sustainability issue. Now, that's a lot of topsoil depleting action going on to feed the millions of cows that they go through each year. So an example of sustainability is, what about eating prairie grass? What about, you know, cows love eating tall grass. They exist in these, you know, zones throughout the country. And one of the chapters argues that McDonald's and companies that raise a lot of Topsoil-depleting annuals, like corn, to feed their animals should make a slow turning of the wheel towards more permaculture. Uh, Tall grass is the grass that the earth produces in the absence of row crop agriculture, so it's a free salad bar for grass fed cattle. Um, you know, we believe they should be investing and doing tests and, you know, introducing, even if it's just with half of 1% of their supply, they should be introducing these concepts to their business. Um, that's about sustainability. It's about long term. Yes, the meat might end up costing more, but, um, you know, at some point we have to stop arguing on behalf of shareholders and start arguing about the long-term benefit to shareholders and to the planet itself.
0: Tell us a little bit about the nexus between the slow food movement, which you've been intimately involved in, and some of these issues with respect to meat that we've been talking about.
1: Well, slow food uh, has a new executive director named Richard McCarthy, and he just organized... big meeting of many of the slow food chapters. We used to call them convivia when I was a uh, leader of slow food here in the States. Now they call them chapters. And they got together in Denver for a meeting called Slow Meat. And their energy of that meeting was to launch active businesses active interventions on behalf of of animals and meat producers and uh you know farmers that raise livestock so i have great respect for that um they also Slow Food. One of their big projects is the Arc of Taste, and it's a metaphorical arc onto which they board endangered or forgotten about foods. And there's dozens of turkeys and ducks and geese and pig varieties. Uh, you know, I think a lot of Americans forget that just like there are many types of dogs and cats, there are also many types of pigs and turkeys, and they each have their own history, their own tastes, um, their own genetics. And we know how important it is uh, to have diversity in the world and not monoculture so all those genetics could prove very valuable one day and uh, so slow food is really into the movement of uh, helping uh, change the way americans eat and the meat that we eat
0: and tell us a little bit about the companies that are getting it right those companies that are that we know of that are doing the right thing and doing this the right way
1: Well, Paul Willis and uh, Bill Nyman were, I think, uh, some of the first people that introduced us to uh, the concept of, you know, uh, certified humane pork. And, uh, you know, there wasn't a menu in the country that didn't have Nyman Ranch written on it, uh, you know, if they cared about their pork. Um, and, you know, there's actually many businesses, cows, uh, you know, there's Will Harris' his White Oak Pastures. He's in Georgia. Um, throughout California, which is its own planet when it comes to food, I mean, it, it is just different than the other states. I think there's a number of, uh, you know, fantastic uh, businesses. I know the Belcampo business is raising animals, slaughtering them and serving them as food. One of my chapters is about Ted Turner, and um, if you don't know, one out of nine bison live on Ted Turner lands in this country, and he started a chain restaurant called Ted's Montana Grill. So uh, there is a lot of good going on, but, uh, you know, what we really need to have happen is, you know, uh, people's turkey sandwich at lunch. Uh, You know, the hamburger they eat uh, when they're going cross-country and they pull off uh, at a gas station. Uh, Those are the types of interventions that Slow Food and Heritage Foods and that this book is promoting. Those are the kind of changes we'll need to make if Americans are truly going to eat better meat and treat their livestock better.
0: Talk a little bit about California, why it is so different, why it is, as you say, another planet with respect to these issues.
1: Well, I mean, California is really uh, one of a kind. I mean, they're very, uh, Californians are very concerned and engaged with their. Uh, with their environment. I mean, I think it sparks a little bit out of the free speech movement, uh, you know, that started at the University of, uh, I guess, Berkeley, right? Um, in 1964, uh, they argued uh, to be able to disseminate political information on campus facilities. I think to this day, Berkeley still maintains that kind of desire to, for everybody's voice to be heard, you know, almost to a fault. Um, you know, Alice Waters, I think, her organic food movement came out of California, um, and that helped. Uh, Robert Mandavi was a big guy to turn that into one of the richest terroirs in the world. Um, and I just think, you know, you're blessed with an amazing climate um and the pacific ocean right there and uh you know large bodies of water and the hot climate uh is a formula for being your own planet for food i mean if it fell off of the uh if it fell off of the mainland and floated away i mean america's gastronomic power would plummet (laughs) um so many unique things come from there Ohio, California, Napa Valley, uh, it just goes on and on.
0: One of the things you talk about is seasonality with respect to different meat. Talk a little about that.
1: Well, as we say, uh, one way you can know your animals are happy is if they've been allowed to have sex. So uh, I think Chapter 25 talks, it's called Sex Cells. For every season, there is a meat. Um, I think in this past century, we've become removed from the fact that naturally mating animals only like to get it on certain times of year, and are only born at certain times of year, and then are grow grow to be eaten at certain times of year. So we like to call the end of the year uh, Goatober, Turkvember, and Duckcember. Um, and because those are the natural times when those animals, as a species, want to be eaten. You know, whenever you open the Charles Dickens book, you wonder why are they eating ducks and geese for Christmas. Uh, and the reason is that uh, you know when, you know animals that have sex in the winter, they're born in the spring, and they're ready for eating in the fall. Um, you know, in time to help us get through the whole winter. And the only reason turkey sandwiches are available year-round is, of course, because of our artificial insemination, and that's another aspect of factory farms. Uh, There's no sex on those farms. It's just a bunch of test tubes and uh, needles being inserted into females.
0: Given the needs, given the demands of the food supply in this country, can we ever get to a point where it is sustainable on a large scale?
1: Yes, absolutely, 100%. Um, You know, we need to look at the nation as a whole. And there's a lot of land in Wyoming and Montana and Kansas and Nebraska. There's huge amounts of land. And, um, you know, it's about the slow turning of the wheel. Um, You know, this isn't about overnight can small farmer markets feed the country. Uh, This is a long, slow trend, but it's a trend that uh, we have to demand, and we know it's the right trend to push for. Our animals deserve it. I mean, if there's an animal suffering anywhere... For our food supply, uh, we need to fix that. You know, as Americans, we have to strive to be good to livestock. Uh, You know, this isn't ancient Rome or, you know, we have standards and, uh, you know, we have the ability to do it. And by the way, people are starving all over the world under the current system. So they also are not feeding everybody.
0: What treads are we seeing internationally in this regard?
1: Well, we just got an email from a lady who would like to introduce heritage breeds into Costa Rica on a much bigger level. Uh, certainly, the uh, and I connected her with the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy. Eric Halman is doing a great job running that. It basically does census counts of all the livestock throughout the world and in the U.S. Um, if anyone has ever been to England, they might have seen on menus how specific the breed names are on menus there even in little pubs they all have their signature cow that makes the burger or the signature signature pig breed that makes the pork chop um, england is very very far advanced uh... in terms of uh... you know respecting their livestock and having breed organizations prince charles and his family keep highland cattle and a number of rare breeds on their properties so uh, they're very concerned. Um, you know, and Heifer International is a very interesting nonprofit organization that sends livestock pears to poor communities so that they can raise them to make food. And, of course, those breeds are climactically adapted to the land and natural to those parts. So, you know, it is uh it does exist uh but uh, you know, definitely the genetics of the animal is a kind of new frontier for a lot of people. They they get it when it comes to heirloom seeds for fruits and vegetables, but the meat thing is just evolving. And by the way, if I might just say this last thing, I mean, it is amazing how little energy is put towards the 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 history or you know, the the breed of the animal or how it's raised. I mean, I cannot tell you how many recipe books and even articles in major food sections and papers today completely and 100% ignore issues like, is the skirt steak they call for grass-fed or corn-fed? Is it the Kobe breed? Is it the Angus? Does it cook fast? Does it cook slow? It's questions that uh, people Don't ask yet, but are going to need to ask if they're going to want to eat the best food.
0: And what are the issues we should be talking about and the questions we should be asking with respect to public policy at this point?
1: Well, you know, public policy. Those guys. I mean, they're. Uh, we live in the greatest country in the world, and so many of those guys in, in politics are a bunch of bums. You know, when it comes to this stuff, they, they, they. Maybe their heart is in the right place, but they have no power to change anything, and uh, a lot of them couldn't change anything. Uh, You know, or won't, because, uh, you know, there's a lobby, uh, you know, that doesn't want them. I mean, those gag laws, where did they happen? Guess where? Those senators were arguing against cameras and photography on factory farms by anybody in the states where there are big farms. North Carolina, Idaho, Colorado. So, um, you know, I don't uh, have any faith in the political world providing... Uh, solutions that are going to enrich the gastronomic traditions of this country and solidify them. I look to entrepreneurs like myself or, um, you know, like I say, uh, uh, Nyman uh, and, and, and Belcampo and, and companies like that on a local level, one hamburger grill at a time, uh, you know, being the best, and most fruitful thing to concern yourself with. And, hey, listen, if the government ends up coming along and giving a boost to these types of causes, great. But we shouldn't sit around waiting, because uh, we might die before we see anything happen.
0: Patrick Martins, the book is The Carnivore's Manifesto, Eating Well, Eating Responsibly, and Eating Meat. Patrick, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Great questions, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank
0: you. We'll take a break.
1: I'll be right back.